Welcome to Deep Dive, a new podcast from the Louisiana Association of Business and Industry, a new space where we here at LABI will let you in on the origin stories of Louisiana's policymakers, job creators, and idea generators. We're rolling back to the entrepreneurial beginnings of some of Louisiana's biggest employers, the innovative sparks that started major movements, and the how-to behind our most creative problem solvers. For our first episode, we have a great guest, a sort of exit interview, if you will, with former Louisiana Superintendent of Education, John White. We'll tackle questions like, what does it take to run the state's largest education system? And what does the future hold for public education in Louisiana? We'll take a deep dive into the issues on the minds of many as Bessie looks for a new superintendent of education for the first time in nine years. In Louisiana, our superintendents have typically been born and raised here. People like Paul Pastrick from New Orleans and the legendary Cecil Picard from Vermilion Parish. So how does a guy like John White, who grew up in Washington, D.C., cut his teeth as a teacher in New Jersey and started his administrative career in New York City, how does he end up being down here on the bayou, leading the charge to rebuild Louisiana's educational system after the storms and walk away years later as one of the most heralded superintendents in the state's history? Well, let's find out. It's time for a deep dive. So I'm here with Superintendent of Education, John White, also happens to be my good friend over years. John, how you doing? I'm good, man. Thanks for having me. You are kicking off. You're the inaugural person that we're going to talk to on our new podcast here at La Vise. Are you excited? Is, it, is this the I don't pinnacle know that I've ever career? been so excited. I would say it is the pinnacle. And you know, so. as you know, I'm, uh, I'm recently... Uh, step down from from the role. So, going out on the highest of notes, you know, that seems appropriate. Absolutely. And you know, if we'd have done this earlier, maybe you would have stepped down. Even I would have stepped down know. the next day. Absolutely. Yeah, so once I'm you glad we're this doing part this nine absolutely. years in. I mean, this is the lot of the podcast. That's what everybody dreams <laughs> That's of. Right, exactly. So just just sitting exactly. down with wags. And you're the leadoff batter. Yeah, absolutely. Which is good because I'm really fast. And you're a Yankees fan. So, who's the best leadoff batter in Yankees history? <sighs> wow. Stumped you there. Well, it's not you, a stumping. Like There's just a lot, or, a lot to choose from. I mean, you gotta go the 2017, right, or something like yeah, that. Yeah, I mean, I don't even know who 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 hit badly off them, but I mean, you know, in my lifetime, I'm, there were times when Jeter hit lead off. By the way, uh, oh, yeah. DJ Lemayu, you are you know a, a stud, stud Louisiana stud. Um, I mean, he may be, he may end up being one of the best leadoff hitters, and 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 he's a hitter, hitter, not That's a speedster. Right. But trained here in Baton Rouge. Yeah, amen. But but most exciting, uh, although his stint with the Yankees was was, uh, you know, of limited time and value. But was Ricky Henderson? Who I don't. Oh, I mean, any time yes. Ricky Henderson has played for your team, you, you know can't. It. You got you got to acknowledge that's that the man. Style points. In his own words, today I am the greatest. <laughs> <laughs> and it by did, the way, that's how I feel today, being here on the Lobby Podcast. <laughs> it takes a bashful man to self-proclaim yourself the greatest <laughs> person of all time. You know what? The truth of it is, Ricky Henderson was just honestly assessing his own performance yeah, without a doubt. dispassionately and accurately. He was accurate. Yeah. He was accurate. Well, that's good. Now that we've covered baseball history and got to Ricky Henderson so quick, um, let, let's go here. So obviously, it, uh, it's easy to say let's go right to the state of play today, what's education look like, all that stuff. And we'll get to that in a second. But... I bet there's a lot of people out there who have heard the name John White. And John White's your real name, or is that a fake name? 
I, it sounds uh, so I, fake. Is it, that really it, your name? It should be fake. And the good news is you can always kind of claim you're another John White. Right. But I'm the real John White. You're the real I'm one? Superintendent John White. Nice. Yeah. Excellent. Yeah. Excellent. So you're that guy. And let's, let's, let's pull in the thread a little bit, go back in time a little bit. You, you grew up on the East Coast. Um, you went to college at UVA. You, you went through that. You had a successful career in the East Coast where you came out here. Walk us through a little bit of like that younger age of you. Like who was John White as a kid? How did you get involved in this education space to begin with? Yeah, uh, yeah. I grew up in Washington D.C. I grew up in the in the district, which uh, you've been there. It's, that's that's fairly rare. You don't you know not a huge number of families that are living in Washington proper. A lot Back of when the Wizards were the Bullets, man. The Wizards were the Bullets. They were they they changed the name when I was in college, um, uh, for good reason, but nevertheless, uh, I uh, I went to a all boys prep school and Episcopalian school my whole my whole uh, time there and my folks split up uh, when I was nine or ten so I, we moved from a kind of leafier area of Washington into the city in DC so both of my folks moved into Georgetown which is the sort of at the time was one of the more hip kind of uh, well-to-do areas mm -hmm. in, in DC so I really and did I guess still is to the state in a lot of, in a lot of ways right? yeah I think so I mean I think Georgetown has um, it was it was the, there was a time when when if you were somebody in politics you had a place in Georgetown I think that's still sort of true but it's a you know DC has become a much more Hollywood yeah. kind of place than it was and there are many many more neighborhoods that have the sort of panache of Georgetown in Washington these days but it was an amazing place to grow up and um, I got you know, in my world, the superstars were not football players or uh, big rich guys. They were power brokers in Washington. That's who I looked up to. I mean, you know, we would see the presidential motorcade driving around town regularly. My, I went to college or, or, or elementary and high school with the, the sons of vice presidents and, and senators. And Is and, this uh, Reagan years we're talking about pretty much? This is uh, Reagan, Bush one, and Clinton. Those were the, that span of my, my time. And so every time a new administration would come in, um, you know, the-, the Friends would leave, friends would Friends would leave, and friends thing, would, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, uh, and that was very cool. I mean, you know, because you'd see Teddy Kennedy walking around your neighborhood. And and, uh, and it was, yeah, and it, and it, and it was a, it still kind of haunts me today in a way because my sense of what is accomplishment is very different from what I experienced when I went to college, which was a lot of guys who were really interested in getting rich. And mm -hmm. and and I went to a great college, UVA, as you said, yes, and um, had a wonderful time with a lot of great people. But it was it was in the late '90s, and you remember that time. I mean, it was the dot com boom, and it was like the first time I think people felt like, even as an English major like me, that you could walk right out of school and uh, make $100,000 off of a campus like UVA. You go work for Merrill Lynch or, yeah. or uh, Salmon Brothers or whatever it was and, in New York and make a lot of money because there was just a, the economy was very, very hot. It was pre-9-11. And um, having grown up the way I did, we were taught to be patriots. You know, my, my parents were not ideologues. They would vote Republican. They would occasionally vote Democrat, but they were they were um, all in on patriots. Did y'all talk politics a lot at the, at yeah, the house? My, my dad, yeah, my dad had, had moved to Washington to um, uh, be a kind of apprentice under Leon Jaworski, who, who was the prosecutor, second prosecutor in Watergate, and ultimately um, led a set of prosecutions with Jaworski, uh, including some uh, congressional investigations, one most prominently called Korea Gate, which was a, about Korean officials having bribed a number of of uh, uh, members of Congress, and he worked for the FTC, 
the Federal Trade Commission. Yeah. Um, he ended up joining Jaworski's uh, legal practice. And so he was kind of in politics. My mother came to DC from a small town in, in uh, Northern Pennsylvania. Um, she went to Duke and uh, ended up moving to DC to be in, in uh, broadcasting, which at the time was a, she was not an actual anchor person, but she was a, in a very, very male dominated industry. Mm -hmm. And so she had her own career. Which kind of she, a trendsetter of her own back then. Yeah, and was a part of, you know, she worked around Connie Chung at NBC and these kinds of mm -hmm. people who really were trendsetters early on. And so we were um, exposed to a, a really, in my view, a really nice vision of public service and public affairs and kind of what it meant to to try to be a, a shaper of public policy and politics without ever being in elected office. We were not, my parents were not fundraisers, they weren't involved in running themselves or campaigns and all that stuff. But so it sounds like it's a, it's a household that was put a high priority in education. Obviously you had a good interesting experience growing up. You went to UVA, a good school, surrounded by some kids who maybe had some of those idealistic terms, some that just want to go to Wall Street and make a buck or two, but Sounds like you had a different career path in mind. So, like, you, when you show up to UVA, like, what, after you left there, what was your goal coming out of college? What did yeah. you want to go accomplish? Well, I knew that I didn't want to go to Wall Street. And, and I still today look at a lot of my friends who graduated high school, and, you know, they're, they've been in that life for a long time. And, and uh, It's a grind. That's, that's a grind. And it's, and it's a grind, um, you know, it, it has its place, but it's, it's, um, it's about money at the end of the day. And... I knew that I didn't, that's not what I wanted. And, and I, I tell this story, but it's worth just briefly repeating, which is I was an English major. I was writing my dissertation or my thesis on a, on a book by William Faulkner called uh, Go Down Moses, which is the story of a, of a Mississippi young man who, who was unable to reject the legacy of uh, bigotry and slavery and prejudice in his community in Mississippi. And uh, Faulkner taught at UVA and he was interviewed by a bunch of students and he all the interviews are transcripted in a, in a book. And one of the questions the students asked him was about my book, Go Down Moses. And I was sitting on my, my couch senior year at UVA, you know, having studied this book for years. I've, I've been reading this book for two years, trying to figure out my thesis. And, and um, Faulkner was asked, what is that book about? And you know, I had a 100-page paper hypothesizing what it was about. And, and he said, look, this book is actually very simple. Um, it's about this. There are three types of people in the world, people who don't know there's a problem, people who know there's a problem and say, tech with it, I'm not going to do anything about it, and people who say, I know there are problems, I'm going to change it and I'm going to fix it, and, and our country needs more of the third. And that's what that book is about. And it, it really rocked me because I had actually secured um, a job at uh, a, a, a very well-known literary magazine in New York City called Maxim Magazine, which uh, I'm not joking about this. I was the first editorial intern and the first editorial assistant ever hired at Maxim. And uh, I had It's to, hard to put, put Faulkner and Maxim in the same point. But I'm doing it. Point, but I'm you're doing, doing it. it. This is impressive. So I called the guys at Maxim and no joke, I said, you know, I'm not, I'm not, I, having read this, I don't think you're quite what the doctor ordered. So I signed up for a program called Teach for America uh, the next day and they accepted me and that sends young people to, uh, recent college graduates to low-income communities across the country to teach and I I was sent to um, a town right across the river from Lower Manhattan called Jersey City, New Jersey, which is where I spent the first five years of my career in the, in the school system there. From Maxim to Jersey, just yeah, like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. all the way to Jersey. You know, just funny how at that age, especially, certain conversations, moments can literally change your path so drastically. You know, just quick, you know, my version of that is when I was in the tail end of college, I thought I wanted to go into journalism. And actually, I took a class that Bob Costas taught. 
and he talked mm. a lot about how hard that industry is and the grind of going through small town to small town to small town to be. And I was sitting there listening to it. I'm like, you know, I don't think that's how I want to my adult life to be. And Larry, I walked out of there and said, I want to do something different. And I went to D.C. to work on the Hill, and that's how that started. So the, in those moments, especially that late college years, we're trying to figure out what's the first step into forever look like. It's funny how those moments can kick you on a path, and that sends you to TFA, which obviously has been a, a great educational jumping point for you at that time. So, Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I mean, by the way, I think, you know, in our own way, our the stories are similar, which is that the callings were to service. And um, not to necessarily, you know, going to... to uh, Asia or, or Africa to volunteer in a developing environment, but to serve our country. Right. And um, I, I do worry a lot that in the absence of large-scale military conflicts, which I'm glad we don't have, um, we don't have enough of a vehicle for young people who have a lot of options just to take a couple years and go spend some time serving their country and yep. figure out who they are. And you know, you know I both did that. And, oh, you you, and, you uh, mentioned TFA. That's been a fantastic organization for that type of experience. City Year, a few others do something yeah. similar. It's it's a great opportunity. So, so TFA and the military, puts, by the and way. military, absolutely, yeah. of course. So TFA puts you in the classroom. What yeah. Was, what was teaching like right out of college? How was that experience for you? Um, it's, I mean, it, it, it's a cliche, but it is the best job I ever had. And it's not the best job I ever had because I just have some particular love of kids. I, I taught high school kids. I was very clear up front. I, I don't want to be around five-year-olds all day. I, I want to teach older Trying kids. Trying to avoid running noses? Is that yeah, all that stuff, yeah. And I want to talk about books and philosophy and, and whatever else. And and what I ended up, I did end up liking the, the you know, academic aspect of it. But more than that, I liked the leadership aspect of it. And it, and it put me back in touch with... Uh, the kid who wanted to be class president. You know, I, I I was able to have a plan every day and build a community and lead a group of people toward a vision. And um, teaching, really, I figured out, is a leadership activity at its essence. And, and it takes good school leadership to, to empower good teachers, and it takes good school district leadership to empower good school leaders. And, and so after three years of teaching, I found myself wanting to do more to lead adults. I, I, had become, I, I worked in a huge school, a school of 3,100 kids, Many of them recently arrived immigrants. In Jersey and the whole time? In Jersey the whole time, but in a, in a part of New Jersey that is probably as close to the World Trade Center as any high school oh, wow. anywhere. And so we we watched everything go down um, from the window of my classroom. Wait, uh, that day? You that, were... that day, we were right there. In fact, oh, wow. my, my school, we were so close to, we, we, we overlooked the Holland Tunnel. We sat on top, we sat on top of the Holland Tunnel in that school, literally. And so the Holland Tunnel was the, the vehicle through which all supplies needed to get into Manhattan. And our, our, the whole city was shut down. Jersey City was shut down. Lower Manhattan was shut down. And our gymnasium and our school, they immediately turned into a triage center for victims so they could take them right through the tunnel, put them in our place, triage them, and get them to the hospitals in New Jersey. Well, nobody showed up. Um, there were no, no injuries from 9-11. You either died or you went home. Oh my goodness! And um, it was it was an amazing thing, especially because I was in an immigrant community, and it was largely Puerto Ricans and Dominicans, but it was uh, also very largely Egyptian and um, uh, Pakistani. And uh, to see a you know the most diverse community you could imagine, we had forty five home languages spoken in my school, react to an act of of you know violence that had a sort of ethnic overtone to it was. Um, Really, an incredible, incredible thing, and to frankly watch the planes 
the second play. We didn't see the first one. We saw the results of it. But the second one we watched go into the building. To sit there and watch it from your window was pretty amazing. Oh, my Lord. Yeah. What, a, what a tragic experience. Did, were any of the students in your classroom, did they have parents? <laughs> yeah, we had a lot of parents die. And, and, and part of the reason is that the, there's a train called the PATH train that that is the just just a little commuter train. It's not a big you know transit train, but it's a little commuter train from Newark, New Jersey, and Jersey City and Hoboken, that goes into Lower Manhattan, and it's and it really exists because people in those towns historically have been the service workers, you know, the custodians, the bussers, the waiters, the bartenders, the whatever that service Wall Street. That's that's what powered the economy in that community at that time. Many of them immigrants and children of immigrants, and so. Um, Sad, sadly, the trains under the World Trade Center were effectively incinerated, and uh, there were a large number of, of kids, uh, parents in my school. And you know, so during that that moment, those those hours, as you just waited, because all cell phones were shut down, you know, just right. waited, waited, waited. People would be just walking around this school building, saying, "My wife's in that building." I mean, I still get chills thinking about it. You know, it was just—I remember I'm just sitting there trying to console a guy whose wife worked in that building, just like. It was, it was and, and what can you incredible. say? I mean, you're a teacher. You're you're in a role where you're trying to lead, but such a unique experience. Just, yeah, you yeah, know, they it don't is. prepare you for those types of moments. No, 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 no. You know, and 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 then there there's all kinds of residual stuff. Like um, one of my kids, one of my very favorite, closest kids, a kid named Monica, um, passed away of an asthma attack a couple of weeks after that, and that was a difficult time too. Um, and looking back on it. You know, you, you're almost, you, you kind of have to think that, the, you know, we're seeing now the health effects from a lot of the 9-11 uh, mm -hmm. you know, responders, and you almost have to think that the dust in the air or something in the air had an effect on, on her, whose, whose asthma just kind of spasmed and, 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 and she, she died one night. Um, but that, too, was the kind of moment where when you're a teacher, there is no preparing you for it. I mean, when you're a relative and you're in your family, you kind of, you can kind of talk with people with a familiarity about death and this person and all that, but when you're explaining to other children that another child has died, there is, and I've had to do it a couple times, I mean, there is no preparing you for that, mm -hmm. and, and it makes you, it grows you, you know, I'll say that. It's sobering to say the yeah. least. Yeah. So that type of traumatic experience, is, is that one of the reasons why you wanted to go into, I guess, city leadership, if you will? The working on the educational leadership yeah. policy for the city? Yeah, well, I felt like like our school system, with all the best intentions, was not run the way that anybody would want to run a school system. And you're talking about the New York City school system? Yeah, well, the, in this case, the Jersey City school system right next to New York. And I'll give you an example of this. I, as I said, I worked in a high school of 3,000 kids. We, we had a four-period schedule, four periods of 80 minutes each, two in the morning, two in the afternoon. Well, the way the union contract worked in my school Every teacher was required to have a lunch period of, let's say, 35 or 40 minutes. Well, there was only one way of scheduling that, and, and under the union contract, you can't be serving kids during that time, which was that every teacher had to have lunch at the same time, which meant that because the teachers couldn't be liable for the kids, responsible for the kids, all the kids had to get sent out of the building. So the rule in our school of 3,000 poor kids in the middle of, you know, effectively, New York City, Jersey City, was that they had to be on the streets. And I mean, there isn't... That's irrational. It's totally irrational. And, and But at the same time, it was like done by the best of intentions. I mean, nobody, everybody's just trying to give the teachers a lunch. But it's the kind of you know, non-child-centric thinking. It's, the not a, it's not a results-oriented way of approaching. And I just, there were a thousand things like that.
And I just thought, you know, I can lead. I, I should start learning what it means to lead adults. And so the founder of Teach for America, Wendy Cobb, asked me if I would oversee the region of Teach for America in New Jersey and then later the, the region of Teach for America Chicago. So I, I did that. And in doing that, I got to meet Arnie Duncan, who was the head of the Chicago school system where I was for several years. And Arnie uh, would ultimately become Barack Obama's education secretary yeah. for almost the whole eight years that Arnie was in office. Yeah, you know, till the very end, I guess. Till the very end, yeah. and, and uh, seven years, and an incredible guy. And when I, I went to him and said, you know, I see what you're doing for 350,000 kids in Chicago. I want to learn how to do that. How do I do that? And I was kind of thinking and say, well, you need to go to law school or you need to get a business <laughs> degree or something like that. And, um, and he said, you need to forget about all that. You need to either work for us or go work for Mike Bloomberg and Joel Klein in New York. Those are the two places where you can learn to do what you're asking to do. And uh, I liked Arnie and I liked his team a lot, but I, I felt like the odds of, of success in New York were better. And so I went to meet with uh, Joel Klein, who was Mike Bloomberg's um, uh, schools chancellor in New York City, which is the largest system in the country, 1.1 million students. And where's Joel today? Joel is uh, working for a, a firm that's trying to kind of disrupt uh, the insurance industry called Oscar. And, but he's been in business. He worked for Rupert Murdoch for a while, doing, uh, starting a publishing house in the education technology space. Um, Joel's real you know, basic career is as a constitutional lawyer and, and uh, an antitrust lawyer. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I learned from Joel probably more than I've ever learned from anybody ever. And the chance to work for Mike Bloomberg and work for Joel for five years, it taught me about uh, politics and it taught me about communities and it taught me about power and it taught me really probably more than anything else just about fortitude and courage and the ability to say, I've got an anchor inside of me, which is for kids, kids who are disadvantaged by the system. And I have to know that anytime I, I try to bring that anchor down, plant it somewhere, it's going to piss somebody off. Mm -hmm. And that's not to say you should try to piss people off, or it's not to say it's good that they're pissed off, but it's natural that they're pissed off if you're doing uh, what's in your heart. And the courage to persist in the space of, of you know, uh, anger and politics in a place like New York is unlike anything I've ever seen. And it was something that I learned a lot about in New York. So Chicago, New York, two big, tough cities with tough reputations. Um, you worked in both of them at a very high level in the education space. Is, is there, uh, what are the similarities? What are the differences? Which one's more cutthroat? What's a big, uh, quick Well, there's, 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 they're both neighborhood cities. They're both ethnic cities. They're both uh, fast-paced cities. And, you know, um, you've got one city run by Mike Bloomberg and Bill de Blasio one run by Bill Daly and Rahm Emanuel. I mean, in the time that I worked in those places, I mean, those are some pretty intense people running some pretty those are intense. Flowers, those, yeah. No, those, that's the real thing. The, I would say the difference, frankly, is the financial situation in New York is so, so much better than the financial situation in Chicago. And to some extent, the sheer scale of poverty and segregation and violence in Chicago is outstrips what exists in New York. I mean, Chicago has tremendous assets, tremendous infrastructure. They are educating their kids on less than half of what New York City is educating its kids on. And New York has a diversity, a transportation infrastructure, and an economy that is a, just is a, a league beyond Chicago. And so I would say that part of the success of, of Mike Bloomberg is that he understood how to use the resources of New York, the tremendous resources of New York, to find ways to reach some points of consensus with a broader swath of people. Whereas in Chicago, you still see things like teacher strikes, 
which in New York hasn't happened for a long time, partially just because the resources in Illinois and in Chicago just are not what they are right. in New York. So that's an interesting path. So you're growing up in D.C., you're at UVA, you go to Jersey City, little New York, little Chicago. You're playing at a high level in education circles. You're getting a lot done. You've got mentors around you. You're obviously in good situations. And then you get, somehow, an outpost named Louisiana gets on your radar. We're going to get back to that deep dive in just a moment. But first, a fun fact from LABI's 45-year history of advocacy here in Louisiana. Prior to 1987, the position of superintendent of education, held by our guest, John White, was elected rather than appointed. That meant when Louisianians went to the ballot boxes to cast their votes for governor, lieutenant governor, state legislator, and other races, there was superintendent of education right there on their ballot. There were signs with school buses and school children all along Louisiana roadways at the time, and the race was one that was often hotly contested. In 1985, Lobby joined with other groups to push the state legislature to make the position appointed rather than elected, believing that it would lead to more accountability and an increased working relationship between Bessie and the superintendent. Their efforts were successful in 1987 when Dr. Wilmer Cody was appointed as the first superintendent of education in Louisiana. And now, back to Deep Dive. You're playing at a high level in education circles. You're getting a lot done. You've got mentors around you. You're obviously in good situations. And then you get, somehow, an outpost named Louisiana gets on your radar. Yeah, well, it had been on my radar for a while. You know, um, <laughs> How so? Like, what, well, how, how did you know about us while you were going through that whole path? Yeah, well, I remember in, I was living in Brooklyn reading a, I think it was a cover story, I think it was in the Times Magazine, about uh, what Paul Pastorek, who was my predecessor, the state job here in Louisiana, and his deputy, Paul Vallis, were doing in New Orleans. And I, this was at the beginning of your years uh, with Governor Jindal. And I was, I was really taken with not the task of, you know, how do you, how do you bust through the political inertia and logjam in a place like New York, but instead, how do you, how do you just rebuild? How do you go from, from, from a flat earth to something great right. in New Orleans. And and there were a lot of similarities because we were trying to create a school system in New York that was much more dynamic, responsive to parents, um, uh, imbued with parental choice, but also strong accountability for excellence, just like they were trying to do in New Orleans. But in New Orleans, they were trying to do it in a way that also had the, the moral necessity of just getting people back on their feet, inviting people home. I mean, it felt, it felt, it was spiritually invigorating to read about and so when i got a call from from paul pastorek again who was running the state probably a couple years after that story came out maybe in 2009 2010 that um we should talk you know about the long-term future of what was happening in new orleans mm-hmm. uh, you know it was something i really needed to look at and i also just remembered that i got in this to lead you know i i, I and i didn't get in it for new york or, or or DC or Chicago, I got in it because I believe in our country and and the chance to you know be in the South where Faulkner was writing about and to see the kind of uh, kind of uh, full circle yeah in a way right I like yeah. to think that and it was very intriguing so ultimately when the guy who was running the New Orleans school system for the state left Paul Vallis uh, you know the chance to meet with you and Governor Jindal and Paul Pastorek and all these people who had kind of rallied around this Democrats and Republicans white and black, you know, to, to try to 
reconceive of New Orleans meant a lot. Now, I did that, it was a great job. I didn't do it for very long because soon after I was asked to come up and do the state job here in Baton Rouge, but, but part of doing the state job in Baton Rouge, uh, which I did after maybe nine months of having worked in New Orleans, was the knowledge that the state was still going to have a very strong hand in New Orleans and I would be able to, to continue to, to play a role, leadership role in New Orleans, while at the same time getting to know places that were really alien to me. I mean, New Orleans is still a walking city. In fact, I feel like New Orleans has more in common with New York than Chicago has with New York. It's not, New Orleans is not a driving city. More than Chicago. Definitely, yeah, definitely. I mean, it's the, the, they all have the sort of ethnic diversity and neighborhood diversity, but there is a fundamental difference between a walking city and a driving city. And while you can walk in Chicago, um, New Orleans and New York are still really walking cities. Interesting. And uh, while they're totally different in scale and size, they're cities of neighborhoods with clear neighborhood delineations and, and, and very, very, tough, you know, machine type politics. And anyways, so, uh, you know, the, the, now I was in a position up here in Baton Rouge where I was going to be doing work in places that look nothing like that. You know, it's interesting, you, you, you're talking to this point, I guess we're what, 2008, 2009 at this point, maybe yeah. something like that. Yeah, 2010. And so, um, you know, you've mentioned not just your growing up, but also all these stops along the way, there's been some pretty well-known political figures involved. You yeah. mentioned Mayor Daley, you mentioned Bloomberg, you mentioned Bobby Jindal, all this stuff, Republicans and Democrats all over the board. It is, it's an interesting, you know, uh, introspection on education. You know, there's a lot yeah. of discussion these days about partisanship and working together and all this stuff. And yeah. over the decades, the education reform movement has been about the most bipartisan reform change agent spot that we've had in the country. And you, you're a living example of it. You've been in and out of every different, you know, foxhole, all with the motivation of trying to improve schools, improve outcomes for children no matter what political figures are there, as long as the ball's moving forward, and that says a lot. But I want to go back to that 2010 era when you were brought in. I mean, you mentioned Pastoret in the days after Hurricanes Katrina and Rita. You know, the, the fact that he was brought in as superintendent by Governor Blanco, you know, a, a, a respected Democrat, um, was a pretty brave move on her part to bring, bring him in and bring in a change agent like that. And for you know, Governor Jindal would come in and keep that person on for a while and work so closely with him, and Paul's a dear friend as well. Um, again, at that time, there was a lot of divisions and partisanships and all stuff, but that was a continuity that was rare in a lot of other ways. You come in following Paul. Paul's a, a, a fierce, uh, hard-charging guy. At the time, the reform movement was really a battle for um, whose ideas were going to yeah. be in charge. You come in, that wasn't really your mantra, and your skill set's a little different. Talk a little bit about when you came in, what was the state of the Louisiana system? Only days, I mean, excuse me, years after those tragic storms, a lot of new energy and foundations and ideas and TFA and charters all in here swimming around. What was the state of what you inherited from a policy perspective, but also just the culture shock of moving to a place like Louisiana? What was that like just getting dropped into this? Yeah, well, I... You know, New Orleans, um, and I can say this, I, I live there now, uh, lived there long enough to say this, that's not really the South. You know, that's, that's. I mean, you, you married to a New Orleanian yourself, yes, I man. I mean, and if she's listening, I'm very proud. Very proud, very, very proud, proud, of, of, very that, proud yeah. of that. You should be. Um, it's That's not the South in the way that I think at least those of us who are not from the South conceive of it. I mean, as I said, it, it actually feels a lot like, like New York. Yeah. And it's, when you get out into the rest of our state, especially as you go up north, as unique as all parts of the state are, 
more of the elements that you kind of expect when you move south. You know, the agrarian nature of it, the small town nature of it, the the, the largely overwhelmingly religious and particularly Christian nature of it, be it be it Catholic or be it Protestant. You know, those tropes kind of come out, and that was different for me. No question, like that was real different for me. Um, and what I realized is, if you're if you're going to serve the overwhelming majority of kids in Louisiana who don't live in New Orleans, I mean, 93% of them don't live in New Orleans. Mm -hmm. That's a very different thing from uh, New York City, where those are all city kids, 1.1 right. million city kids. And there's big foundations, they're donating money in New York City, there's huge companies with skyscrapers, there's big media companies that want to broadcast your stuff everywhere. It was going to be a different game in uh, Richland Parish. Right. And at the same time, those kids, they deserve, you know, as much, as big a slice of education reform or education progress as any kid in Harlem or Bed-Stuy does. And so I had to think about, you know, what would it mean in that context? It, it doesn't do any good to go up to Richland Parish and saber, saber rattle about charter schools, right. you know, or vouchers or whatever. I mean, there may be some ways of-, of Providing folks, an option that's not existing in the yeah. neighborhood doesn't help much. Right, right. yeah, exactly. So, so, so what do you do and what's your tone and what's your message? And, and, at this, and then on the other hand, coming out of Washington and coming out of Baton Rouge, I think for the better, but it, it wasn't easy. There was just a ton, as you said, of ideas and policies. And we're gonna measure schools and rate them. We're gonna measure teachers and rate them. We're gonna provide unheard of choices, online learning, private schools, you know, traditional schools, non-public schools, all this stuff. And you remember that, 2011, yeah, totally. 2012, 2010, I mean, it was all new. And we kind of had to assemble a team and begin to make sense of it for all these diverse environments, not just New Orleans, but also Richland Parish. And I think if there's one thing I'm really, really proud of over the years is that we have a credible plan for change and improvement that I think builds on the assets that exist in very diverse local contexts. And when I think there are three categories that I'd say. We do have big major cities in this state. I mean, in particular, New Orleans and Baton Rouge are big major cities. They've got big universities, they've got big companies, they've got big transportation infrastructure, rivers, and so on. I mean, and in those places, you can conceive of a strategy that doesn't look that different from what it looks like in New York City. Go, go recruit good operators, totally. convince them to come here, go totally. recruit good talent to work in those totally. entities, convince them to stay here, put accountability on there, educate parents, give them options. Totally. It's kind of the same model in a New York or Chicago, yeah. I guess. Right? And, like, and it's, by the way, it's not totally different from what you guys did with economic development, right. Stephen Moore. I mean, you're going to these companies, you're saying, I know you run a school operator. In That's Phoenix. where the whole fast start concept came from when we went to Georgia and saw how they were doing it, where you had a company that said, we want to be there but we having trouble finding the training and the personnel we need. You yeah. can't depend on the old legacy systems. Fast Start was brought in to kind of short circuit that, put together a tailor-made notion totally. that worked in that spot they were going to, whether it was in, as you say, Richland Parish or Baton Rouge. Kind of the education reform policy for the state needs to have that flexibility as well yeah. to be able to quickly identify the gaps, the opportunities, and bridge them both to, to make it work for students, right? Yeah, and I mean, you know, you can say to a company in Houston that runs schools, a nonprofit company, come to Baton Rouge, You've got two flagship universities. You've got uh, uh, great housing opportunities. You've got a, a growing downtown. You know, you're going to be able to scale. There's a, this is a big system. There's 100,000 kids in this metropolitan area, more than that. You know, there's opportunity here. That's a New York-style, New Orleans-style playbook, and it's happening in Baton Rouge, which I'm thrilled about. That's not as easy a pitch to make in a Boyle's Parish. Mm -hmm. you know? And 
So you've got to figure out how do you take all that super active policy making and have it make sense for schools in that context. And I think that means a couple of things. First, it means you got to have some idea what's happening in that school and what is the thing that's going to be most effective at scale. We've got 1,500 schools to deploy. But also, secondly, culturally, what's the what's the hue and cry in, in Willis Parish? Yeah. What, what, well, what are they saying? What are they saying? I mean, what what? How do they think about things? You know, and I do. I tried to get to every parish very quickly. The minute we passed the 2012 reforms, which were sweeping, you know, sweeping changes in the legislature, and I was brand new, I knew that the thing I had to do is to get out everywhere, and even if they didn't like me, try to make myself present for two reasons. First, I think it it lent credibility to the changes that I was present, and secondly, these are places I had no familiarity with, and I needed to hear a little bit about how they talked about stuff so that I could figure out how to roll things out in a way that made sense given their position and their needs. And look, this is not to say that this became a hunky-dory relationship all of a sudden, but I do think over time we have developed a facility to deploy things at scale into schools that locals can take and, and, and have ownership over and create, which uh, means you can do stuff in New Orleans just as much as you can do it in West Carroll Parish. So. Let's talk about that era where you're going on the road, you're hitting all these schools, you're getting to know folks and yeah. families and all stuff. And let's talk about that likability issue, as you, as you call it. So when you're the leader of any organization, whether it's the State Department of Education or the office down the street or in between, you got to make tough calls. you got to make tough decisions. You have to explain those decisions. Some people are like them, some people there aren't. State superintendent oftentimes has to make tough decisions that deal with a lot of passionate stakeholders, whether they're parents or teachers or educators or whatever. Some people won't like your decisions. Some people love you, think you've done a great job. Some people criticize you. Any leader has been in, in spot for nine years gets some of that. How do you think you're viewed in Louisiana today? And do you think it's fair? Do you think people know the real John White? Well, no, I mean, certainly not that, but I don't know that that's their responsibility or my responsibility. Yeah. I think that, that the, the core responsibility of this job is to look at what the evidence says works for kids. And, and in particular kids for whom if you weren't looking out, nobody would be looking out. And to try to find a way of making sure that that thing between teacher and kid or parent and kid or principal and parent or whatever is happening in a place that you may never go. And, and the challenge is that that's a different thing from being a local district superintendent. That job is about serving your constituents in every way. Buses running on time, cafeteria, you know, making the food in the right ways, football games going on well, curriculum is being taught appropriately. I mean, that's grass a, that's, is that grass is getting cut. All of it, budget's balanced, all of it. That's about delivering services that meet the needs of your constituents. This is a different kind of job. This is a job about setting the standard. And in a way, a standard that's going to anger people sometimes. It's going to frustrate people. It's going to be long-term, and it's not gonna be reachable initially. But your job is to kind of sit at the center of this of this swirling mass of millions of people, which is our school system, and say, here's a standard, and I will help you get there, but I'm not moving on the standard. The standard is the standard. Mm -hmm. And I've always felt like, if you just anchored yourself in a very simple idea, which is that our kids are just as smart in Louisiana and just as capable as any kids in America, whatever God you worship, he or she made them equal to all those other kids. So thus, the standard should be uncompromising in being equal to the top places in the country and in the world. And just don't compromise on that. Don't rub it in people's faces and demagogue on it, but just be there and don't move off that. 
ultimately, if you stick around long enough and you sell and you sell and you sell that message, people will come around to the fact that I may not like him. I may not believe that a non-Louisiana native should be running our school system. His pants may be too skinny, you know, whatever it is, you know, I've, I've been accused. I'm not commenting on that. I, I know that's not your, I know, I know you, I, I know you have your views on my pants, <laughs> but, but, you know, they will respect you over time. And I do think that, you know, there's politicians have kind of registered opinions in varying ways about what I've done. But the one thing they could never accuse me of doing is flip-flopping or being dishonest or deceitful about my beliefs about education issues. And that's not a matter of trying to keep it safe and play in my lanes. It's just to say the job is not worth doing if you feel like you constantly got to maneuver to keep it. If I've got a job that I'm trying to keep, I wouldn't be doing this one. I'd be doing you know something, something different. And I, it sounds corny, but I really think it's true. I mean, in a way, the best long-term political strategy is to be who you are and don't try to be something that you're not. It's the only strategy you can you can deploy because if you try to go a different route and put a facade out there and try to beat it, it will crater at some point. You don't take a nine year, ten year. That's the approach you're taking. Yeah. So your yeah. time is a testament to your approach working. I would say. Um, so as you look at your nine year tenure, um, a lot of wins, a lot of bills passed, a lot of reforms put in place. Um, I know you're a stats and data machine. You could tell me kind of where we are in rankings and all that stuff. But I guess if you could, just in kind of layman's terms. What's the one or two things that you think we do well as an educational system mm -hmm. right now? And what are the one or two things that as you leave, you, you're going to be watching in the years to come mm -hmm. to, to, to keep your fingers crossed and hope that we yeah. make some improvements on Yeah. Well, in a sense, I was hired to create a better educated state. Mm -hmm. We've got 800,000 kids in our system. And by any measure, they're better educated today than they were 10 years ago. More kids are graduating high school going to college, more kids are getting tops, more kids are getting industry credentials, advanced placement credentials. Um, you know, you could go on down the line. We're the most improved state in the country in eighth grade math this year on the national test. You know, so there are good indicators. Um, and what I think we have done well is have a unified plan where you can walk into any school, any public school in Louisiana today, whether it's in Livingston Parish or Caddo Parish or Webster Parish, doesn't matter, and expect to see a set of non-negotiables that are a high-quality curriculum, a plan around an early childhood program, meaning for kids who are, are prior to kindergarten, actually providing child care, a high school uh, set of options for kids that either connects them directly to a job after high school or directly to college admissions after high school, a teacher who's actually being prepared to, in, to do the job in the classroom under the training of a mentor teacher, not in, in the ivory tower. And there's no state in the country that can provide you the level of confidence that I can, that those things are happening in communities, urban and rural alike. That's what we've done well. I think what we have, what we have not done as well, and what I, it's not to say that anybody's done it as well, um, but I think the thing that our country is struggling with is, we talk about income inequality, um, you know, reading inequality contributes to income inequality, just like income inequality contributes to reading inequality. So they're related. But income inequality gets a lot more airtime than reading inequality does or the math inequality does. And we talk about achievement gaps, which I think is a, is a term that it's become so overused that we just need to drop it and just acknowledge it for what it is. If you're poor in Louisiana, the odds are very, very, very high. You don't read as well as the rich kid down the street. 
and not even the rich kid down the street, the middle income kid down the street. If you've got one parent at home in Louisiana, the odds that you read as well as the kid who's got two parents on the other side of the tracks is very, very, very limited. And, and that just should trouble all of us very much. And I don't think that's because the teachers are worse or the schools are worse, but it's because there's a whole bunch of stuff. We have huge concentrations of poverty in places like North Baton Rouge or in parts of Shreveport or the Ninth Ward of New Orleans, you know, whatever it is, rural communities. Um, we have struggles to staff teachers that are prepared in community, in low-income communities. Uh, you know, there's a million reasons why this is the case, but it persists. It is the case. And sometimes it's just the case that our teachers are overwhelmed and don't exactly know what to do with the kid who's reading three grade levels behind where he should be. But it is a fact. And I'd like to hear our political leadership return the dialogue less to all these magical promises, and I'm talking about at a national level and at a state level, all these magical promises we can make to everybody for how they're going to get free this and free that, to the reality that we're cranking a lot of money into our school system, and it is still the case that poor kids in Louisiana really don't ever learn to read on average nearly to the extent that your kids and my kids do. And I'm assuming if you look around the four other states, every rural poverty, impoverished area in those states face similar challenges? Yeah, there no, no, no question. Okay, no, so no question. I mean, look, there's, you know, Louisiana has made more progress than the overall and I ask that because is there a secret sauce out there in some other state that we should be grabbing, or is it, is it kind of a uh, globo problem that every state is tackling and it's going to take a unique Apollo mission type effort to kind of overcome it? Well, inequality is, an, is, a, is not a uniquely American problem, but it's a distinctly American problem. Mm -hmm. I mean, no question about that. We, there, you look at, at the, just the list of developed countries and how we compete with the Germans and the Japanese and so on, and there are two countries that jump out as having stark educational and academic inequality and that, or, or and economic inequality, and that is the UK and the US. And, you know, Louisiana is, a, is one of the starkest manifestations of that um, in some respects because we're dealing with 300 years of history of an agrarian economy. It's an economy that pulls stuff out of the ground rather than makes new ideas. Um, and with that came slavery. And let's be real. I mean, we are trying to reinvigorate and resuscitate and make more just a society that has been completely unjust for a long period of time. And education is a big part of the solution. It's not all of the solution. Um, but you just don't do that through passing a couple bills and hoping it'll make things better. You know, you do it through year after year after year of concerted effort to make things right. So I think Louisiana is no different from other places, but it may be a more, more pronounced case of it. That being said, um, you can look at plenty of populations in Louisiana that didn't experience the, the more horrific aspects of slavery or Jim Crow or whatever else, and they too experienced the negative effects of a lower standard. And I, so I don't want to say that there's a lot of kids out there who can't claim the legacy of any of that in Louisiana who still are lower performing than their peers are in other states or lower skilled or lower opportunity. And I, I, so we should talk about our history and acknowledge it and fight it but at the same time recognize that there's a lot of evidence that the here and now matters too, and we could be doing a lot better. Yeah, and, and you know, we know interstate Los Angeles and all these other areas are, have their own stories to mm -hmm. tell on how we got to this point, but you know, the question is, we have kids who are falling behind. If you're gonna drop out from high school, it's probably because in those early grade school years, we lose them, or we don't do enough to basically get them up to speed quickly whenever they enter that first grade, second grade, whatever portal. Early education is the issue that is talked about a lot in this session. There's a lot of bipartisan support for it. 
is that a is that a foothold to start moving some of the needle on this to try to grab kids a little bit earlier, give them some foundation skills for success. Yeah. So when they come in, we can start making improvements on some of these reading challenges we're facing. Do you think that's a critical step? I think it's more part of a, of a comprehensive step? plan. No, I think it's I think it's I think it's a critical component if you have a comprehensive plan. And it's a comprehensive education plan and a comprehensive economic plan. Because what I like about early education is that it's it's a solution for the parent and a solution for the kid. And I, I mean, you know this, working in industry, I mean, this this matters. Um, I've got a young child and I've got another one on the way. I mean, we do... We're gonna get to that in a second. I'm man. sorry, man, I'm, stealing, I'm stealing your thunder, but I gotta give myself you know, some props here. <laughs> right? I'm like a real person with a real family. The, you know, the daily act of paying for childcare, of totally. taking her to childcare, of being a childcare provider myself, it is a strain on me, and I've got a thousand times the resources that many Louisianans have. And and so when I think about if I were a single parent from a low-income background working multiple jobs, some at night, how on earth would I manage to get a leg up in today's economy? Childcare is an immensely important part of that. Oh, just to build off that, we can drive down to RPCC right now or any of the other community schools are doing a great job on providing some um, early adult training, if you will, to prepare yeah. folks for good jobs. And they'll say, look, we got the programs, we've got the need, we've got the demand. The problem is the people who should be in this classroom, they can't find someone to watch their kids. Yeah, they yeah, they sure. don't have a ride over here. Yeah. Or they can't leave the second job they have to make ends meet to get over. So those, those real-life issues yes. that a lot of people, like ourselves, take for granted, child care, transportation, yeah. uh, the ability to get home around 5 or 6 or dinner time, whatever it is for you, a lot of folks don't have that, totally. and so those real-world issues do get in the way of making sure that not just that we're doing this right for families, but we're meeting workforce outcomes, we're, we're meeting reading outcomes, we're doing those things we know we got to get done. Yeah, and it becomes, I mean, people find answers, but it's a question of what they have to give up, whether they give up their kid's safety, their kid learning their letters, uh, they give up their own working hours. You know, they give up their own mobility. I mean, they, they give something up, just like you and I give something up, except we cut a check. What do they give up to make sure they're doing right by their kids? Because they're going to do right by their kids, you know, but they make an incredibly intricate set of calculations, probably much more than we do, to make sure they get to work and do right by their kid. And we, I do think as a society just need to reckon, I would love it if it were the case that mom and dad were together, mom and dad could take care of every kid and raise them in a, in a context that was a little bit easier to manage because the home life was easier to manage. We're beyond that point. The world of work has changed, family life has changed, um, the, the, the way we travel from place to place, move to place to place has changed. This is a more dislocated, more disrupted society than it was a generation ago. And I believe to be a contemporary state with a contemporary economy that's competitive, we need to reckon with some of those facts and invest in some of this core infrastructure. Now, at the same time, I mean, look at my city where I live, New Orleans. You know, if you have an economy that is based on uh, effectively easily replaced low-level wages, it doesn't matter all the childcare and education you provide, if you don't have an answer at the other side of the funnel for upward mobility, you've got to, you know. You don't prepare some, if you prepare someone for a job that doesn't exist, you're not really doing them much of a right. I mean, or you're preparing them to be a citizen of California. I right. mean, so I, I think that you can't disentangle child care and social services from education, from the economy and the workforce. And it's all married. It's all yeah, and the government the government's job is not to create a master plan that tells industry what to do or tells family what to do, but it can create a framework that helps 
incent and encourage creative solution making from the private sector and from local governments. And I would like for our government in Washington and our government in Baton Rouge to think more in those terms. And you know, I have to say, as I said, I work for Mike Bloomberg. I didn't work directly for you guys in Bobby Jindal's office, but I was part of the Jindal cabinet. And I had issues with Governor Jindal as time went on, and I haven't loved everything that Mike Bloomberg has ever stood for. But I really benefited from You've my had time issues with every government. governor. I, I just can't get along with the governor, man. I, I, I got a governor around with you, man. Uh, but, you know, they were very active on the innovation aspect of government, and that's yeah. part of what attracted me to government is there were people like that who they understood the private sector. I mean, both of them have worked in the private sector. They, they, I think they understood that the private sector needed to be dynamic and shouldn't be squelched under regulation, but, but they also understood that an active government that encouraged ideas was helpful to bring a society. You know, don't they, I would say, is don't undersell some of what maybe just the reform bills that were passed in the dark of night of the Capitol and the impact they're making today in Louisiana on some of these issues you just talked about. Let me just give you two examples. Mm -hmm. Chris Ray. Mm -hmm. That's a school in North Baton Rouge. I happen, I'm on the volunteer board there, so I know a little bit more about it. Every day, there's between 60 to 80 kids per class, freshman, sophomore, junior, senior, who get up, they go to school at a school that would not exist if not for some of the reforms that were passed during your tenure. And they, they go to class four days a week, and one day a week they get on a, on a bus and they go to a job site in South Baton Rouge. Mm -hmm. That is a connectivity from north to South Baton Rouge we would not have had except for those bills. Those kids are getting experiences they would not have had except yes. for those bills. I, I, I'm talking to those kids. Some of them work in my office here today. Their lives are forever changed, just like that Faulkner book that you read, that Costas class I took. Their lives are forever changed because of that bill passing by one little vote yeah. in the middle of the night. So those reforms matter. Yeah. Another one is the Emerge School. I'm also involved with that. There are kids on the autism spectrum today that are going to go to a charter school that would not be here if not for some of those hard-fought, wonky bills that passed in the dark of night in the Capitol. And yes, those kids are being benefited, but there's a lot of single parents that drop those kids off mm -hmm. every day where they had no answer before. Yeah. And they can go get a job or go get training yeah. and their lives have changed with some. And I think that's one, those are a couple of countless examples that if you flood the educational system with high quality options, high quality opportunities for parents, teachers, principals, leaders to take advantage of, and you kind of foster an environment where they can go grab it, I think that as the beginning of making a huge difference. and. Your tenure was a big piece of putting a lot of those opportunities in the wall. So there's a lot to be proud of on that. And I think you're moving some of the, the ball forward, some of these societal issues you talk about, probably more than you realize in some of those issues. So yeah, no, I, don't I think, lose sight of that. No, I think that is a very good point. And, and you know, if, I, if I'm trying to sound a note of humility, I think it's only to, to recognize in a way that those two schools, yes, a legislature and a governor and a, and a state board and a superintendent, created the opportunity for them to exist, but the idea is from real people trying to solve real problems. And, and, you know, I know you're very close to, on both, in both cases, the, the, the entrepreneurs who were trying to solve those problems. And I, I do think that there's something about the special mix of entrepreneurs trying to solve social problems and governments who want to work with them and bring them in and grow their stuff that is about the most exciting work you can be involved in. And, and the problem, of course, is the minute the government says to entrepreneurs, you know, you're not 
your ideas are not welcome here. We're going to move toward a more traditional conception of stuff. It turns a spigot off. We'll just go back to your experience. You said there was a wait time back in the day in Jersey City where the government said, you must take this time at this point every day for lunch, and these kids must go outside and walk the streets. What if instead they would have said, hey, yes. at some point throughout the day, you got to grab a bike because yes. you need to give you a break. And at some point throughout the day, you should be using that time to give those kids experience to a local employer or local training or whatever. Yeah. Long story short, but government is too prescriptive most often. When they're trying to do the right thing, they're actually tying the hands of those entrepreneurs that yeah. are trying to be creative to get it done. So, anyway, yeah. there's a lot of a lot of ways to chew on that issue. Yeah. And you can go in a deep hole on that. But I think Louisiana has a lot of things cooking. A lot of it's not fully baked yet, if you will. But there are, there are ingredients there for a successful mix. And down the road, I hope we continue down this path. And if so, your tenure, I think, deserves a lot of credit yeah, and appreciation for getting down that road. Yeah. Um, I need a pivot. Yeah. Um, so what the heck is next for you, man? You say New Orleans is your home. Is it yeah. your long-term home? What are you going to do next? You yeah, know? that's our long-term home. I mean, you know, my wife is from the East Coast, too. Um, but I got a dog from Bossier. Yeah. Your dog's from Bozier. Not Shreveport, Bozier. Bozier. I, 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 I understand the red, how deep the Red River runs, man. It's deep. Trust me, I, 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 I understand. The, my dog, his mother was an uh, American Kennel Club Labrador. A mutt got into the doghouse, did whatever dogs do. That's a different podcast for a different We're podcast. not going there. My dog, Ben, was produced. At a young age, he was moved to Baton Rouge by a, a, uh, an adoptive mother, not a dog, a human. And um, she was a little much for him. He was a little much for her, so she had to give him up. And there's a fantastic place here in Baton Rouge called the Adoption House out on Highland Road, the dog adoption house that, where, where we got Ben. So Ben was the first native Louisiana in my, and the only northern Louisiana in my family. My daughter, Grace, is a South Louisiana, born at Two Row Infirmary in New Orleans. You're not about to call her a mutt, are you? She's not a mutt. Okay, thank you. I, I mean, she is part Italian and part wasp, <laughs> but, but, she, but she's not a mutt. And uh, I've got another kid on the way. Don't know boy or girl yet. Congratulations. Congratulations. Thanks, man. Um, and he or she will be at uh, South Louisiana. So, you know, that means something. And we sent our kid to a child care in New Orleans that we're big fans of. And, and so, you This know, is we, like a country song. Two, two, two Yankees, two Cajuns, and a mutt. And a mutt. That's, that, a that, mutt that's from true. Shreveport. And a mutt from Shreveport. Bozier, man. Waylon, Bozier. Bozier, sorry. Waylon Jennings probably wrote this song. No, that is. We'll Google that yeah, later. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, man, I mean, you know, I think one thing about New Orleans and about Louisiana generally is you live in these places. And I lived in Baton Rouge for five years, too. I had a, I had a great a great run in Baton Rouge. I loved living in Baton Rouge. But these towns, they're big enough so that you get into some of these really complicated, meaty societal issues, political issues. But they're small enough and they're community oriented in a way that you can really be a part of it. And, you know, in New York, I mean, you can join a community board or be on the board of a nonprofit, but you're one of a million people who's a mover and shaker trying to do stuff and make things happen in New York City. In Louisiana, there's a community sensibility, a sense of what people wanting to know and invite you in, and a cognizance of the need to, to change. That, that makes being here very, very special. And I, I mean that, I mean, it's, it's not, um, it's, it would be a big deal for us to have to leave New Orleans or South Louisiana because we'd be giving up a lot. Well, you've busted your butt the whole time you've been here. Um, you've worked hard, you've always put kids first. Sometimes that has 
giving you praise. Sometimes that's giving you criticism. I think that's the sign of an impactful leader. If you're not scared to do whatever it takes to put the prize first, and the prize is improving outcomes for kids in Louisiana. This can be a probably a very rewarding job, if I could guess. It could also be a thankless job at times. But nine years is a long time. Is it the longest serving tenure in, in the country? Yeah, That's yeah. Tenure. It wasn't actually, it's it's almost as long, not as long, but almost as long as um, Cecil P. Carter, who was my, my predecessor. Another two, great former superintendent yeah, who lived yeah. a lasting legacy in indeed. Louisiana. Indeed. I mean, you know, in a way, uh, as I think toward the future for our state, we've been greatly blessed to have long tenures of the superintendents. Paul, my predecessor, was there for only four years, but Cecil was there for 10 years. I was here for eight and a half, nine years in my job. And, and uh, um, you know, we should, we should want continuity. Our state is making incremental, steady, but upward, no question, upward growth as a function of governors, Republican and Democrat, superintendents from in-state and out-state, out-of-state coming in to, to just keep things moving in the right direction. And I would, I, I pray that we don't uh, want to take a detour from that path. So what's your parting advice for Louisiana? And I, I know you're staying in New Orleans, you're going to be around. I'm assuming you'll still be a voice to a certain extent in putting kids first like you always have. But what, what's your advice for all of us as we kind of figure out what's the next step? Because, you know, we obviously had our post-Katrina Rita years yeah. that there was a lot of rebuilding yeah. and restructuring. Then we kind of had the years of putting in place aggressive policies, putting a great certain provision to empower parents to give them options. What's the next phase look like, and what's what's the best advice for us all as policymakers, parents, citizens, to carry forward to make sure that we continue the evolution to creating the educational system that we want and deserve? Yeah, well, I do. I do. I think your point about the evolution since Katrina really matters, and Rita. Um, we're now 15 years almost after those tragedies. And I think what that means is, you know, uh, this just sounds amazing to say, but we are effectively a generation removed from those tragedies. And there's a burst of energy in government and politics and public service and business that comes with responding to great tragedies and catastrophes. People all across the world wanted to be in South Louisiana in that time. The effects of that lingered in many, many ways, in good ways some bad. But the real question is, how do you sustain that momentum without needing that sort of uh, catastrophic and, and catalytic event? And I think you do it through focus and through an unwavering sense that our people, our businesses, our communities, our students, our children can and should be on a, pl on a level playing field with anybody in this country. And that means that for people in a position of authority, there are a thousand decisions they make every single day to vote on something, to recommend something, to, to uh, support something, to give voice to a cause, that they can or cannot choose to affirm that simple idea that Louisiana is just as smart, just as capable, just as promising, and just as deserving as any place in this country. And the minute you start compromising on that simple idea, and that compromise and accommodation and kind of going along to get along and just being a part of the establishment and just making things a little bit more comfortable for everybody, that that becomes your MO, then you go back. And it won't be until another horrible event happens that we begin to get the resurgence of energy. It is harder, I think, to lead for change in a time when there's no evident disaster. In a way, it's harder to make the case for change, let me say that 
than it is in times of uh, when the disaster is more evident in front of everybody. And so I think the next 15 years are going to be a lot harder in terms of making the case to people for continued improvement. And we're going to need leaders across our society, governmental, business, and otherwise, to step up and make the case that the things can be better. Amen. Well said. John White, thank you for your leadership, and thank you for being the inaugural participant in our new podcast. Do you have a plaque or something that I'm supposed to be getting? Um, trophy? You, actually, the, the the glass of bourbon that we've been sipping while we've been doing that, that's your reward that's for my, this. All right, I'll, I'll notify the ethics board of this, <laughs> of this drink. We'll report it later. I'm sure Thanks, the paperwork good, is good in the mail. It's no under 50 bucks, I think, noting the swill that you've been serving. So <laughs> awesome. Appreciate Thanks, you, man. Thanks for having me. Man. All right. Appreciate you. coming on. Thanks to listening to this inaugural episode of Deep Dive from the Louisiana Association of Business and Industry. LABI is the state's Chamber of Commerce and Manufacturing Association, with the voice of more than 2,000 businesses, large and small, who collectively employ more than 300,000 Louisiana workers. And will soon be located at 5th and Main in downtown Baton Rouge at the LABI Center for Free Enterprise. For more information on that, please visit labi.org and text LABI to 66866 to sign up for our newsletter and find out a host of information on upcoming events. Thanks for taking this deep dive with us and look forward to catching up with you next time. From the Louisiana Association of Business and Industry, this is Deep Dive, a podcast about Louisiana and the people and ideas that make it work. I'm your host, Stephen Wagesback. Mitch, yes. let me turn this off. <laughs>